say again, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2019. I know you've probably already heard it before, but this is my first time back with you in this new year. So hey, it's great to be back. It's great to see you all. And it's so good to worship, isn't it? Someone thinks it's good to worship. I think it's pretty good to worship. You know, I've always loved worship, but it is, a, it is actually a bit of a strange thing. Like when you really think about it, like if you, especially if you've grown up in church and you've been around it, it's a common thing. If you're not used to it though, it is pretty weird. It's a bunch of people in a room singing, lifting our hands. It can be a bit strange, but you see, we had an event here in La Vida on Thursday night where someone had booked the building out, they'd rented it. And this person was a, is a well-known neuroscientist here in New Zealand. Their job is to essentially educate the educators, to keep up to date with the research around brain development, the way the brain works, you know, neurons and all that kind of stuff. And so he was putting on a talk for people. And one of the things he started talking about was endorphins. And actually, if, if you don't know what endorphins are, they're the feel-good chemical. You know, it's the chemical that gets released in our brain, and it makes us feel good, makes us feel happy. But what it also does is it actually also helps our brain learn. It helps our brain grow, and it helps connect neural pathways and do all sorts of things like that. And he was talking about this, and he asked the audience, what is something, what is the one thing that you think, the highest thing that releases endorphins in our bodies that we can do? And to get the uh, immature ones out of the way, it's not sex. Um, but what is the number one thing that you can do to release endorphins in your body? And so people threw out some guesses. They said, oh, well, water and exercise and things like that. But actually, it turns out the number one thing that a human being can do to release endorphins in their body is sing. Singing is the main thing, one of the greatest things we can do to not only make us feel good, but actually help us learn. And it helps our brain connect things and helps our brain grow. And I was thinking in the context of worship, you know, we are innately designed to worship God. We are designed to worship and to praise. And singing is one of the ways we do that. And I think it's so cool that coded into our biology, we can see that principle. That when we sing, when we gather together, when we lift up his name, when we worship vocally, it actually increases our spirits and helps us feel, not just feel good, but actually helps us improve our brain, improve our state of living, which I think is pretty cool. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling a bit down or whatever, can I encourage you when we start singing, give it your all. Because you might not feel like it in the moment. I don't always feel like worshiping when I come to church, but every time I do, something within me starts to stir. And I know that it's not just biology. There is something greater than it than just biology, but coded in our biology, that principle is there, which I think is pretty cool. So anyway, carrying on. Hopefully you've managed to have a great break by now and get some rest. I know many of you will be starting back in the grind this week. The holidays are going to come to an end. But I was reflecting over the holidays, and I said this last year, but I'm so excited for 2019. I'm so excited for what this year holds. I really feel like this is the bookend of a decade. You know, next year is 2020. We're about to enter the 2020s, which seems to sound so futuristic. But they're here with us next year. And I just really get a sense that God wants to do something great as we finish off this year, this year. As we come to the end of a decade, I'm really expecting, and I hope you are too, for what he's going to do for us as a church and in your life this year. And I don't know if you saw the article that was released, I think it was about a week and a half ago, that it is expected that New Zealand's population is going to crack the 5 million mark this year. That this year we're going to hit the 5 million mark. I think it's currently sitting around 49 and they think that by the end of the year, we're going to hit 5 million people for the population of New Zealand, which is still a relatively small country compared to the rest of the world. But that is still a lot of people. 5 million people is a lot of people. And Statistics NZ seem to estimate that New Zealand's population increases by one person every five and a half minutes. 
One person every five and a half minutes, New Zealand gains an extra person in the population once you take into account births and deaths and the immigration rates and all that. Five and a half minutes every person. And then there was a study released in May last year by a Christian organization that found that around 17% of New Zealand's population regularly attend church, which means they attend church at least once a month. 17% of the population. So if you want to do some really rough math, that means on average there are around 260 more people living in New Zealand than there were yesterday. And if roughly 17% of these people already regularly attend a church, that still leaves around 215 people who do not attend a church, not part of a local community, a place where they can gather, feel loved and belonged like this. 215 more people every single day. Now, obviously, these are very rough numbers, and this is not you know, proper statistics or whatever. This is just me doing some maths on the fly. But I think it's enough for us to realize that there are plenty of people still around us in our lives who still need the hope and the love of Jesus Christ who still need the loving community that we have in this room to be part of a family where they can come and feel loved and and have that sense of belonging. I love the fact that over our holiday period, wherever you went in New Zealand, if you traveled around, if you went overseas, you could walk into a local church and you could have family there. There'll be people who visited um, our church and they can come in and have a family. It's one of the amazing things about the local church is that it is a family. And anywhere you go in the world, regardless of your race, your culture, your language you speak, you can have a family there because of the local church. And so there's so many more people still around us who need all of that. And the reason I share all of this is because I think it helps me at least realize that I have such a big part to play. And you have such a big part to play. God has just so much work going on. There is such a big plan that he is working out that it requires each and every one of us to play our part as best we can. We cannot afford not to. You are too valuable of a player to not be 100% on board. You are vitally important. One of the greatest things about discovering Jesus is the fact that we get invited to be part of the plan and part of the answer, that you have a unique role that God wants you to play. So I know that we all love New Year's resolutions, or for me, New January resolutions, because they don't last longer than that. But I think a great thing to think about maybe this year in 2019 is how am I contributing to God's plan this year? What am I doing this year that is helping God's kingdom move forward? The little things in my everyday life, what are the little things I can implement day after day to see God's kingdom continue to expand this year? And Jesus talks about this many times throughout his time with his disciples as we read. And one of those times is Matthew 25, which is what I want to share on to this morning, I'm about to say tonight, this morning, Jesus in Jerusalem is right before he's about to be arrested. And he's sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples and they're asking him questions. He's been starting to say a few strange things, like he's going to be arrested, that he's going to die, he's going to be taken away. And so they start questioning, well, what's going to happen? When is all this stuff going to happen? When's the end of the world? How are we going to cope? All this stuff. And so he starts talking to them in these parables, starts telling them these stories to help them understand, wanting to teach them that this is how I need you to operate when I'm gone. This is how the world is going to work after I leave. This is how I want you to be known. This is how you are to act and how you are to love each other and how the world needs to know you. And so starting at verse 14 of chapter 25, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, one bag of silver to the last. 
dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received five bags began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more. Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Come, let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have got some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from the servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it was all going so well right until the end there. We had a great story. We had some servants who had succeeded. They'd done well. They'd had a win. They're probably feeling really good about themselves. The master had rewarded them, given them a bonus, given them extra responsibilities. It was all going so wonderful. But then we all turn sour when the last servant comes along and ruins our story. We don't get the happily ever after, and it ends on this really dark and bitter note. And I don't know about you, but every time I read this story, I start to empathize a little bit with the last servant. When you, read it, when you read it on the surface level, you can start to feel a bit sorry for him. You know, he was just trying to look after his money, master's money. He didn't want robbers to steal it. He didn't want to lose it. He was doing as best he could, wasn't he, by burying it in the ground. He thought it was a good idea. Then when the master gets back, he can have his money back. I won't have lost anything. He's just trying to protect it and keep it safe all that time. Yet he gets punished so severely when the master returns. It seems initially that his punishment is so much more severe than the so-called crime he committed. And so I'd love to work through this with you this morning because Jesus has some really great things that we can learn from it. So starting back at the beginning of the passage, we have this wealthy man, the master as he's called. And we're told he's going on a journey. And Jesus says it's not just any journey, but he's going on a long journey. He was going away for a long time. And he didn't want his business and his affairs to just stagnate and go stale in that region So he calls together some of his servants and entrusts them with some money saying, hey, keep my affairs in order, keep my business going, go out, buy some properties, do them up, sell them off again, continue to make some money, keep my business operating here, don't let it go stale. Yet he doesn't give the same amount to each person. He gives five bags to the first, two bags to the second, and one bag to the third, which initially goes, well, that seems a bit unfair. Why not just give the same amount to all of them? Give, send them out, give them equal opportunity, they can go out and make some money. 
But then Jesus slips a really key piece of information right there in that sentence. Dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Or some translations say each according to his ability. The master gave each servant an amount of money according to that servant's ability, according to what they could handle, according to their competency. And it took me a while to notice this, you know, reading the story over and over as I have throughout my life. But what I realized is that this really provides us a really good view of what the master is like and the character of the master, because clearly the master knows his servants really well. If he knows the servants well enough to know what their abilities are, to know what their competency levels are, to be able to divvy up some money saying, hey, I'm going to give you this amount because I know you're capable with it. He knows what they're gifted at. He must know the areas they're not so good at, the areas they struggle at. He must know them reasonably well. And so he gives them these differing amounts of money based on their ability. And I think that what this shows us, or at least hints at right at the start of the story, is that maybe the master's plan isn't so much about the money and more about the servants. Perhaps it's less about making some profits and more about the servants. If it was purely about the money, then surely he would just give five bags to each of them and leave them and say, here, go out, here's an equal amount, go out and make as much money as you can. But instead we see a master who takes the time to consider what amount would be best for each person. He goes to the second servant and gives them two bags and says, here you go, you can have two. I'm not giving you five like I have the other guy. He's actually been around for a bit longer. He's got a bit more experience. I know he can handle that, but I don't want to give you that amount because it might be a bit too much pressure for you right now. But I know that you can do really well with these two bags. I want to entrust you with this, give you a chance, go out and do that, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. And when you think about it, that's just like us today. We're each unique. We're all different. We've been made differently. We have different upbringings and cultures and personalities, different gifts and talents, different competencies, different races to run. And we're all required to do different things based on the, the gifts and talents that God has given us, but we are all given something. None of the servants was given nothing. They were all given something. It's not a one-size-fits-all policy, but everyone is given some responsibility. And so here we have a master who not only really cares for the servants, a master who knows his servants well, but a master who wants his servants to succeed, a master who wants his servants to have a win. He's trying to set them up for success. It's a really intimate level of knowledge, actually, that we start to see. But then so we carry on. The master goes away, and after a long time, he returns And he calls the servants into his office for them to give an account of what they've done with his money. And so the first servant comes to the master and says, Master, you gave me five bags of money. See, while you're away, I made five more bags. And this is the master's response in verse 21. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities, many more opportunities, much more resource. Let's celebrate together. And now you can imagine for a minute the second servant who's only made two bags is probably starting to get a little bit nervous. You know, his hand's probably starting to get a little bit sweaty going, oh, he reacted really well to that. I didn't even have half of what he made. How's the master going to find, you know, how's he going to take it when I've only made two? This guy's made five. But the master's response is exactly the same. 
word for word, he says the same thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. And so then we get to the final servant, the one who is entrusted with one bag. And I love the way that the servant starts, begins this dialogue, the way he, the first words out of his mouth to the master. Can you imagine walking into your boss's office when you've been called for a meeting and starting with this? Master, I knew you were a harsh man. I know you're a harsh man. Harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money. And I just want to pause right there. I was afraid I would lose your money. He's got a confidence issue. He's not actually so sure of himself. Can I actually do it? Am I good enough? He seems to lack the confidence for what the master has entrusted him with. And so he did nothing. He allowed his fear, he allowed his lack of confidence for him to do, to basically stagnate him and say, well, rather than doing something and failing, I'm just going to do nothing. And this resonates with me so much. There's so many times it's like, no, I know I'm not good enough. I'm afraid I would fail. I'm afraid that person wouldn't value my opinion. I don't think I'm really good enough in that area. I don't really think they want to hear what I have to say. And yet the master still gave him a bag anyway. Even though he had a confidence issue, the master thought he was capable of it. And even though there'll be many of us in this room who feel that same way, I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't really know if I'm gifted enough. I don't really know if I could do that. I don't want to do it. I'm going to fail. God has still gifted you anyway. Because he thinks you're capable of it. You have gifts, you have talents, you have abilities, you have a part to play. God has entrusted you with it because he thinks you have the ability. And if he thinks that I have the ability, then it is up to me to believe it and to trust that the master thinks I am capable and that I can do it. I was afraid I would lose your money. So I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you at least deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have, will be taken away. I knew you were a harsh man. I knew you were a harsh man. I knew you were a hard, stubborn master. I know this about you. But actually, from what we've read up until this point, up until this servant says this word, have we actually been given any evidence that that is what this master is like? So far, we've actually seen a master who's entrusted his servants with a lot of money, a good amount of resource to go out, give them an opportunity to prove themselves. And then when two of the servants come back and say, here, look what we've done, not only does he thank them, but he says, look, I've got a whole lot more for you here now. He celebrates them. We've seen a master who's taken the time to consider what would be best for each of his servants, a master who knows his people really well, who cares for them, who wants them to win. And so actually from what we see, we haven't seen a harsh master yet. And so perhaps this servant has seen the success of his master. 
Perhaps he's seen the fact that he's wealthy, that he's done well for himself, that he's made a lot of money. And perhaps he's gotten a narrative in his mind that this person must just be out to make money. This person must just be out to steamroll everyone. They must be a hard person for them to get where they are now. They've got all this resource, so clearly they're making their money off the backs of me. He must just be out to get everyone and must only care about himself and making more money. Yet we seem to be able to see that profits weren't actually the goal in the master's mind. If the master was only driven by profits, then he wouldn't have given the same reaction to both servants, the one with five and one with two. If he was purely about profits, he would have gone to the servant with the two bags and said, oh, well, you didn't quite make five. Here you go. I'll reward you a little bit, but actually this guy's my star player right now. He's making me five bags. You, you could have done a little bit better. You could have, you, know, you could have doubled it at least, done a little bit more. But that's not. Instead, we see him giving the exact same response. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. Let's celebrate together. What were they celebrating? Were they celebrating the money they had made? No, he was celebrating the success of his servants. He was delighted because the servants had succeeded. They had grown. They'd been faithful. They'd learned about themselves. They'd put themselves. They'd challenged themselves. They'd stretched themselves. They'd increased their capacity. They succeeded just as he had tried to set them up to do. And he's so, he's so happy because, because he knows that because of their faithfulness, he has able to give them so much more than what they already had. He says, look, I'm going to give you many more responsibilities now, so much more resource. You're going to have access to so much more because of your faithfulness. This is what the master is celebrating. You will have so much more now in my kingdom than before. And what the third servant seems to fail to realize is that the master's desire is to share his success and his resource with the people around him to share his wealth, to share his success with his servants. And so clearly the third servant doesn't know his master very well. And we see that with people who don't know God very well. It can often be easy when you don't have a close relationship to see God as a harsh God. He's a faraway God. He's a distant God. He doesn't care about me. But when you actually get to know him and you see him up close and you have a relationship with him, that's not what you see. So he assumes that he's a hard man, that he's a cheat, that he doesn't care about his servants. And so the master calls him wicked because actually he's entrusted him with something very valuable and he's treated that valuable thing with contempt by simply burying it in the ground. Saying you didn't even think long enough about it to consider putting it in the bank. You took the easy way out where you could bury it in the ground and you could forget about it. He hadn't given him the money to simply look after it. Otherwise, he would have put it in the bank himself, but he gave him the money to invest and to use, and the servant didn't even try. We're told the master went away for a long time. So this isn't just a case of this servant having a bad day or a bad month. But the master went away for a long time, and this servant buried his gift in the ground, and he forgot about it. It lay there unused, underutilized, not having any impact. So when the master came back, the servant was exactly in the exact same position as he was when he left. And so the bag is taken from him and given to the one with 10 bags. And he's thrown out of the master's kingdom. You see, everyone has something. We've all been given something. We all have some responsibility. Some have more, some have less. 
We're all created uniquely and individually with unique gifts and abilities. But it can be so easy for us to start playing the comparison game. To look at the people around us and look at the bags of money that they have. Look at the gifts and talents they have. Look where they are. Be so easy for the servant with the two to look at the servant with the five and go, well, why have you got more than me? Why has he given you more than I have? But you see, what we have to remember is that we don't actually know what it took for the servant with five bags to earn that other five. We don't know the things he had to go through. We don't see the pain he had to put himself through, the work he had to do, the effort he had to exert. The master was away for a long time. So for a long time, it took him to earn another five bags. We don't know what he had to go through. But would it be safe to assume that he had to go through more, he had to put in a bit more work than the one with two bags who had to earn another two? And this is why it's actually a very merciful thing for the master to do, dividing it up according to their abilities knowing that if he was to give the five bags to the servant with two, actually that could ruin his life. He might not have the competency to deal with having five bags. He might have ended up coming back to the master, having totally squandered it all, going, this was too much pressure. I wasn't able to handle this. This was outside of my ability. I didn't have what it takes to earn another five. And it would have caused more harm than good. And so, if so, and so instead of comparing ourselves to others, it's so much better to live in the joy with the gifts that God has given us, knowing that he has given us our gifts, our abilities, our pathway, each according to our ability. Knowing that he has equipped us to live the life that he wants us to live. I think it's such a key to living in satisfaction and living in joy, knowing that God has given us exactly what he knows we can handle. Nothing more and nothing less. And if he thinks I can handle it, then I need to believe I can handle it. So we've all been given something. We all have some responsibility. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples here, that while he is gone, we have a job to do. He has equipped us with work to do. We can't just bury what we have in the ground and forget about it and let it gather dust and be underutilized and underused. We've got to take it in our hand and we've got to get out there and we've got to use it. But the other thing I think Jesus is showing us is a really amazing view of a master. What's your perception of the master? What's your perception of God? How do you view him? Do you see him as a harsh man, always out to punish you when you make a mistake, always looking over your shoulder for you to trip up and for you to fail? Or do you see him as we've seen the master in this story, a master who desires for his people to succeed, to win, a master who knows his people inside and out, who gives them gifts and entrusts them with resource according to our ability so that you're best equipped to live the life that you have. Do you see the master as someone who is wanting you to grow, a master who has so much more available for you in his kingdom? And so what are we going to do this year in 2019 with the things we've been entrusted with? We all have some responsibility. We all have some part to play. How are we going to play that part in 2019? If the band would like to come back up. Will we treat it with contempt by bearing it? Pretending we don't have it. Forgetting about it. Going, oh, I'm not really that gifted. My workmates won't really value my opinion. I'm not that good. I really don't want to step out because I might fail. I'm not actually as good as I think I am. I'm not that good of a friend. I'm not that good of a 
parent. Because I think 2019 can be a year where we remind ourselves that not only have we been given something, but it's been entrusted to us by a God who knows us, a God who loves us, who loves you and wants the best for you. And if he thinks you can handle it, then you are capable for it. It'd be so easy to live in fear and to shy away from stepping out, but God thinks you are capable. He knows you have the ability to do something great in this life. And so you owe it to yourself to believe it this year, to trust that the master knows you well enough. He's given you things he knows you can handle. Because the great thing is, is that unlike this story, we aren't alone. The servants had to go out without their master's guidance. But we have the Holy Spirit with us each and every day, equipping us, encouraging us, leading us and guiding us, giving us wisdom where we can. And so I want to remind you this morning that God is for you. He cares for you. He loves you. He wants you to succeed. He's equipped you to succeed. And as a nation, as we continue to grow, as Christ Church, as we continue to grow, and more and more people come into our lives who don't have the hope and the reality of Jesus Christ, God has given you the gifts and talents to see their lives transformed and turned around. As the city continues to rebuild, as this nation continues to grow, I wonder for how many people 2019 will be the year where they come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Where they come to know the experience of being a part of a church family and finding a place where they can belong. What is your part to play this year? And so why don't you stand as we're going to sing some more songs together as we carry on. But let me just pray for you as you stand. Father, we thank you that you are the best master we could serve. That you don't see us as a means to an end. You don't see us as a profit-making tool but you entrust us with resource because you know that there is so much more for us and you are so eager to share it with us. You are so eager to see us come into all the fullness of life that you have for us. And so Lord, where there are people in this room where fear is maybe holding them back, maybe they're like that last servant, I was afraid I would lose your money. God, I want to break that fear over people's lives in Jesus' name. That they would have the courage to be able to take what you have given them. And even if it's just a small step, to step out and to use it. I pray that this year would be a courageous year for us as Life Church. That is, we have people in our world who don't know you, who don't have a loving family, who don't have a church family they belong to. I pray that this year, more and more people would come to experience the love that you have for them. That their chains would be broken. That their lives would be turned around. And we thank you that you invite us to be part of your plan. In your mighty name we pray. God bless you. Why don't we sing together?